Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for just want to be free from power, weakness head on me. Free, 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 free. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety back in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today on the show, I'm really happy to have a listener who wrote in uh, on the 30th of January to tell me she had 30 days of sobriety and that she was planning to share her story after she hit 90 days. The thing was, this wasn't her first rodeo. Sarah is here today to tell us about how her story has taken a bit of a turn. She had several years of recovery and thought that niggling thought that some of us sometimes think, maybe I can just drink normally again. Sarah's going to tell us how that worked out. <laughs> I bet you can guess, but not all the details anyway. Sarah, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much, Jean. It's an honor to be here. I'm so glad you are. And we we had a few, um, well, it, it's funny in the long run, but we tried to record this yesterday, and technology just wouldn't allow it. And you're so nice, you're on vacation, and so you were recording while you're on vacation, and then you came back for a second day today to give it another try from a more... Um, uh, connected spot. So I really appreciate that you're giving service right on your own time. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us your story. All right. So um, I am 41 years old and I'm single mama to adorable four-year-old twins, which plays a huge part in my story. Um, And uh, just really glad to be here, which I'll share um, today. But just being listening to the bubble hour these past few months has just been so integral in my recovery. So I'm thrilled to be here and to share with everybody. Um, But anyhow, my story. So I um, grew up in Michigan until I was about 10. And I had what I would consider a normal childhood uh, two brothers, just kind of a middle class family, but it seemed simple back then. And and just easy and fun and happy. Um, what I didn't really know then but became significant later is um, I did grow up in a home where my father pretty much always had beer in his hand or drinking was just a very normalized behavior. So it was something that I saw often and, and repeatedly. Um, so my parents moved the family uh, south uh, when I was about 10 years old. And then shortly after that, Uh, divorced when I was about 12, 13, which was a very tricky time for me. So divorce, of course, is hard for any child to process, but also going into my teenage years, um, it was tricky. That was about the first time I ever had a taste of alcohol. It was actually given to me by my, my dad. He had gotten this fancy VHS tape recorder for Christmas. And um, he thought it would be funny to give me a little Asti Samani uh, on New Year's Eve and just video record. I don't know how I feel about that. Not very cool. Don't think I would do that to my kids. But um, anyhow, that was my first experience with it. And I I don't recall that like warm, fuzzy feeling that some folks say um, they get. But I also know that there was nothing about it where I was going, oh, drinking's bad, where I shouldn't be doing this, because that wasn't really a message I ever heard. And so that really, uh, first taste, parents getting divorced, move, you know, pretty big geographical move, all of those things along with others that I'll 
come back to, um, kind of led me into the start of a very self-destructive path at age 13. So um, I began, you know, drinking at that age, not regularly, but when I could get access. So the first time I got, got busted by the cops was at a party. Um, by the age of 16, I was lying to my mom regularly and going to parties. And I always joke that today, if they had the technology back then that they had today, I would be chained to my bedpost. But um, <laughs> I would go out and, you know, get be lying and, and get busted, again, busted by the cops, but narrowly escaped serious ramifications um, by the police because I was only 16. And, you know, the funny thing is, and I think I hear a lot of women talk about this, is what was important to me is to still keep up all of these appearances on the outside. Even at that young age, I was a straight A student, you know, I would get awards by teachers and things of this nature when really, um, although I didn't fully understand it, I was just struggling obviously so bad at that time, you know, as much as I was turning to, to drinking um, and self-destructive behavior. And so um, it carried on, you know, drinking was normal to me and I never thought uh, anything of it. So by 18, I had a fake ID. I mean, the stories go on and on. Spring breaks, um, senior trips, you know, just in a drunken blur, um, put myself in many unsafe situations. And I'm very lucky um, that nothing happened. And um, even my, my college orientation, the night before, I, I drank so much that I, I missed my college orientation the next day. And it was the red flags were everywhere. Um, but I, I didn't see that. It, it's just normal. I started dating a guy. We were in a relationship for 10 years, from 18 to 28. And um, he was a drinker, too. So, again, it just seems normal. I think um, probably around 24 is the first time I probably said out loud to somebody else that I think I might have uh, an issue with alcohol. And um, that was pretty much it. It was a a friend that said, hey, I'd, I'd like to try and help you. And he sent a few texts and I strung my knees together and, and that was it. Um, so I went on. I finished college a little bit late, um, got a great job, and by the time I turned 30, uh, I, I once again was keeping up all of the appearance, appearances of success with the job and the car and the lifestyle and the friends, and um, I was single at the time, and um, 30, for some reason, is about the point where I really felt things start to shift inside of me. Um, I was aware that, uh, and food had come into the picture as one of my vices at that point too. And um, I was aware that there had to be something deeper rooted for why I was, you know, acting and acting this way. So, you know, you wake, I would wake up every day and literally hate myself and look in the mirror and go, why am I doing this? And I, I can't believe I did this again and I'm not going to do it today. It's the cycle I've heard so many people talk about. And um, I was absolutely miserable. And I, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to go a therapist and to me in order for me to even consider getting better uh, I don't know if I was considering sobriety at that point but it, considering just wanting help you know and so for me the way that my brain works I thought I've got to start unpeeling the layers of I've got to go back and I have to figure out why deep down inside me I'm feeling this unrest and um, so so horrible and why I'm feeling like I have to drink my feelings away and stuff them down with food. And so um, that's really where my work began that, that ultimately led um, to choosing to put down the drink. Um, I found an awesome therapist and there were two things that um, happened in my life significantly. And um, the first one I like to talk about because I feel like it's such a common um, theme. And I think that the more women that can hear it, and can relate is helpful. I know it is for me. So the first thing that happened was when I was seven years old, I went to spend the weekend with my grandparents. Um, they had a, a lake condo and they were very involved in our lives. My grandfather, stand up citizen, um, you know, bought us our first bikes, were involved in every holiday, just great. And we went over and so we planned a sleepover on my grandpa's sailboat, which was awesome. And I was excited, but what happened that night on the sailboat was, um, was awful. It was just something that shouldn't happen to a child, especially uh, from their own family member. And it, he, you know, he did inappropriate things and it left me feeling very shocked, 
and confused and I was afraid to say anything. You know, I, I wasn't aware. I didn't know if it was right or wrong or, and so, um, you know, I kind of just kept it to myself and, you know, sat with it for a while and then I finally let the cat out of the bag, but it happened again. And so, you know, for me, it was a situation that was left unresolved and I couldn't, it physically stopped, but I couldn't ever understand until I was in my thirties sitting on a therapist's couch that that so significantly, significantly impacted, you know, my emotional well being and, you know, I mean, so many things, so much pain um, that I, you know, I kept telling myself the whole time I grew up, you know, it didn't affect me. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm okay. It was the story I told myself, but you know, as I started to peel back those layers, I started to understand the ways in which it just caused me pain. And, um, you know, it took a lot of work having to go back um, and, and work through that. So that was one um, significant thing. And the other was my parents' divorce. It was just more um, a guilt situation with that. My mom and I were extremely close. We were like best friends when I was 12. And so she confided in me often and um, I knew that I knew that she was planning to leave my dad. He, of course, was a drinker, as I alluded to, and that played a significant role in why my mom wanted to leave. Um, and so, uh, an, another situation that alcohol affected my life. Um, and I should jump back. My grandfather, which I would later come to know, was in the midst of his own struggle with alcohol when everything happened with me. So these are just all ways that alcohol also affected my life. Um, so that was the, at the root of my parents' divorce. But anyhow, she was heading out on a business trip, um, and it was Super Bowl Sunday. Won't forget that. My dad had some friends coming over, and she said, hey, listen, I wrote him a letter. I had gone apartment hunting with her. I knew it was happening. Um, all of it was okay to me at the time. Um, but she said, I just don't want him to find it, so can you put it on his pillow? Sure. So I did. And um it was one of those things where I was okay with this situation until I really looked down at it and thought, Oh my gosh, this is like a bomb, you know, that's blowing up my family. But again, it took me many years later in my thirties to actually have a moment on that couch, you know, and say, Holy cow, I have to let this go. It wasn't me that, that letter, you know, cause I really did believe that deep down inside that because I put that letter there, but it would have happened either way. But for me, those are two integral parts to just say, okay, let's get down to the really ugly, nitty-gritty emotional stuff. Because if I can go to those dark places, it's going to let some light in. And then I can work on, you know, starting to wrap my head around how can I eliminate alcohol from this and kind of ease the pain. Um, so it was a very slow conversation um, over years with my therapist. And to be honest, I, um, I went to her talking about my eating as my self-destructive behavior. And I really avoided the subject of drinking. And, um, you know, we would touch on it lightly here and there, but it just wasn't um, something I was ready to talk about. And I think what fueled that is um, definitely not something to be proud of, but my friends would joke and say, oh, you're a self-drunk because I could drink and drink, but people wouldn't really know. But that actually hurts it hurt, hurt me in some ways instead of helping me because then people just don't perceive you, you know, as having a problem. And so I was really in this weird struggle. Like I knew I was struggling. Other people wouldn't necessarily think so. I wasn't ready to tell my therapist. It was kind of this odd um, scenario. And so anyhow, I finally at one point I think just felt so miserable and I thought I need to address the elephant in the room. So I kind of fessed up to her that, you know, here's the deal. I really feel like, um, I'm I'm drinking way more than I should and then it's affecting my life negatively. Um so the ironic thing was um the guy I had dated for 10 years between 18 and 28 that we had our fun together. Um we did keep in touch and remained good friends and ironically a few months before I kind of, everything came to a head for me um he had made his way into um a 12 step program and so my therapist said, hey, would you, uh, would you ever consider, you know, going to AA? And I thought, oh, gosh. I mean, you know, my very first initial thought was, oh, no way. I mean, my grandfather ended up in AA and absolutely, you know, not. That's, mm -mm, you know, it was just denial, no way. 
But she did say, you know, is there anybody that you know? And I thought, gosh, you know, I, I do. Uh, my ex just recently um, has gone, so maybe he could take me. Um, and so I went to my first meeting, and I just remember um, I was so grateful because this meeting was in a – the lights were off. It was like in a church gymnasium, but they had the big fluorescent lights off. And I was so grateful because when the people started reading – you know, the things about how it works and whatnot. Um, I just cried and cried and cried because I knew that it is exactly where I needed to be. And um, I also cried because I was angry because I didn't want to be in this situation. I mean, wine was so love-hate for me. I could not imagine my life without it at all. And um, it was so ingrained in me. And um, I was angry that I was at this point in my life where I had to go all or nothing. I mean, nobody was forcing me, obviously, but I knew um, that I was at a point of all or nothing. Um, And so there were just so many emotions that bubbled up in that meeting, but um, it was affirmation for me that uh, it was, it was the place to be, but I didn't, I didn't stop then. It was probably, um, six more months of me going out um, and testing, you know, I didn't need to know, but I, I thought I had to try it out anyway. And um, seeing if there was such a thing as moderation and all of that stuff. And um, I, I just got, I had a couple more situations where I don't know how I made it out the way I did without, uh, you know, thank God, no DUIs or hurting people, or I didn't have any serious ramifications, which I'm so grateful for and lucky for. But um, I did have a couple of really stupid moments um, in those next six months. And I just woke up one day and I just felt so empty. You know, I just felt hollow inside. I just, I just felt like I had no sense of purpose and didn't know why I was working to make this money and just, just feeling so empty. And um, I thought it was a Sunday and I thought, I just can't do this anymore. And so um, that Monday it was back in 2013. I was about, um, 35, I think at the time, um, I just said, that's it. I'm, I'm going to a meeting and that was the choice for me. Um, my, my path to recovery, um, and picked up a chip and I really dove into the program. Um, I'm kind of a defiant person by nature. So it was very difficult for me. And, um, the God piece honestly really freaked me out and scared me. I grew up in a home where we didn't go to church and didn't talk about God. And I did probably consider myself atheist at the time. Um, so even the notion of somebody saying, Hey, can you just be open, you know, open to accepting something greater than yourself, uh, was really hard for me, but I was also at such a point of desperation, um, that I realized I needed to just be willing to give a little because I didn't want to keep living the way that I was and feeling, um, that awful. So, uh, a hard part for me, um, when I first went, you know, first quit drinking was talking to my family and friends, because like I said, there were, of course, I had a lot of partners in crime, you know, my drinking buddies and they didn't, they, they were just kind of shocked. Like, what, you, you think you have a problem? I mean, you don't, you really think you need, um, and that was hard. And, my family was very 100% supportive, um, and there were a lot of folks in my family that can just, you know, have a couple drinks, and <laughs> and then I stare at them like, you are an anomaly, um, but, you know, I could spend time with my family and um, with with them drinking normally, not me, um, but it was a part of it. It was just a part of our family dynamic, so that part was hard for me, but they were open and understanding. Um, it was maybe the friendships and my personal lifestyle that, that was affected um, more so. But I really did dive in and made the commitment. And um, it was it was funny. Um, early on, I was so embarrassed that I had to go to a 12-step program. I just thought, this is so ridiculous, Sarah, that you cannot figure this out by yourself. You know, you're smart and you've done all of these things in your life, but you cannot figure out how to get sober and you have to go to this program. And I really was beating myself up, myself up about it and just completely embarrassed about it. But this really beautiful thing um, for me starts to happen. You know, it's like 
you get some time under your belt and then all of the fog lifts from your head and, you know, you just start to really experience clarity. And then for me, I really felt like I was never going to truly belly laugh again. Um, And then I did. And then the friendships that were made and the other people that understood me so much. And it was really this amazing shift from wanting to hide uh, my recovery to, Hey, you know what? I'm really proud of this. Like this is great and amazing. And there are so few people that actually can do this and enjoy it. And, and then it became, I want to help other people, you know, it's just such a beautiful shift. And, um, and so I got to a point where, um, you know, I was doing my service, but also um, my therapist was awesome. I mean, she would email me and say, hey, I just spoke with someone and they're struggling and they would be, they would love to connect if you're open to it. And so I was able to help in that way. And um, everything just felt so good. And before I knew it, you know, a year and um, and it became normal for me and easy. And I, I stayed pretty connected. I mean, I still stayed, you know, connected and went to meetings regularly. Um but I felt like at that point in my life, there was only one thing left to do. And that was pursue my biggest dream. And my biggest dream in my whole life had always been motherhood. Um, But I was 36 at the time and I just hadn't met anybody. And I, you know, that old biological clock was just ticking away in my ear. And I thought, well, instead of, you know, getting desperate and selling in a relationship, I think I'm going to do, I think I'm going to pursue this on my own. I'm, I'm going to go and go the donor route and I'm going to have a baby. And so uh, my mom was thrilled and excited. My stepdad, I mean, they were just over the moon, my whole family, my friends, everybody was on board. And so I pursued that route and was blessed with twins, which was a bit of a shock, but, um, you know, we, we made it through. So um, I guess about the time, even when I was first pregnant, I had um, a year and a half under my belt Um, I still went to meetings, but then when the babies were born, uh, obviously my life just got completely turned on its head and I was feeling like a zombie most of the time and things were so crazy. Drinking didn't even cross my mind. I mean, I was just sleep deprived and just, uh, couldn't think, couldn't imagine putting something in me that would make me feel worse. Um, and so really the first two years of my kid's life, um, I didn't think about drinking, but I also was completely disconnected from my program. So I had moved to another area of the city. Um, I wasn't doing any reading. I wasn't seeing, talking on the phone or texting with anybody. Um, I was quite frankly overwhelmed with my life, but that's of course when you need probably to stay connected the most. And I made that fatal mistake. Um, So when the kids were nearing two, um, that's really when the voice in my head started to get loud and I told myself things like well I have kids now um, and so there's just no way I could ever drink that much again because I have to be responsible and take care of them and I mean we all are all probably aware of you know the mommy culture you see it everywhere in social media Um, you know just have a glass of wine and take the edge off and so um, I really struggled with all of those thoughts in my head And, um, you know, next thing I know, just at four years, um, at four years, my four-year sobriety date, um, it was right around that time I made the conscious decision to pick up again. And um, the amount of turmoil in my head, um, the amount of anxiety, even tossing around the idea should, of course, have been the biggest warning to me. Uh, I knew with every bone in my body that it was not the right decision, but I felt, um, I don't know. I justified it away. I justified it away. And instead of doing everything they tell you to do, call a friend, call someone else in the program, tell somebody, whatever, you know, um, go to a meeting, (laughs) which I could have at that point. Um, so I just ignored it all and I justified it away in my head. And, you know, looking back now, um, to anybody, if they're, if they're listening and feeling that way, you know, if I could be one more voice to say, I promise you it's, it's not worth it, you know, um, because it wasn't. And I started out gradual and told myself that there was going to be a way I could manage it. And, um, you know, it it was probably not even within a year. It was, it was awful again. And, um, 
I, I think I wrote this in my email to Eugene, but I, the thing that blew me away the most was, and they say that it's progressive, I thought that I was doing a great, quote-unquote, great job because I would, you know, drink my wine at night, you know, start early and up and drink it and be finished, but I would feel so horrible every single morning getting up with the kids and um, I would drink coffee and just power through that headache. And I would be like, yes, I pulled it off. And it was absolutely a joke to even have my, my brain thinking that way. Like, Oh, I can pull this off. I can do this because truth be told, it was uh, not only was I so physically just oh, feeling awful to me, it's not even just the physical, it is the, the mental and emotional sabotage. Um, it is, an awful state to be in and um you know it and that's that's where it it came to after about a year of drinking is it was just weighing on me so heavy but the interesting thing for me this time around is that my circumstances were so different and so um there were all of these different reasons um being tossed around in my mind that were very logical like um okay i purposely made a choice to bring my kids into the world and I am the only parent they have. And this is just in my mind, pure negligence, you know, to be drinking this way and just being self-destructive. And um, I have these two tiny humans. It's the greatest joy I've ever experienced. And I brought them into this world and I wanted them. And this isn't fair, you know, not only to me, but not to them. And um, there's also the idea of uh, the example that I'm setting, you know, I think of it as, breaking the cycle. I mean, I grew up in a home where drinking was normalized. I never experienced anything from my father negatively. It just, it's just that it was always there. And I know that it was at the root of my parents' divorce. And I could give, uh, and, and I know how I am now as a parent, if I'm drinking, I don't have the energy to engage with them. I want to lay in bed an extra hour in the morning. I, you know, it completely changes the experience that my kids receive from me as a parent. And, um, and I have a chance to break the cycle from what I grew up in to what they grew up in. And that's most important to me. I know genetically the deck was stacked against me between my grandfather and other family members. And that likely means it could be the deck, the deck could be stacked against them. And so all I can do is lead by example. And these were all of the things that were going around in my mind when I was, you know, getting into the thick of, of drinking again. And um, so Finally, um, the breaking point for me was um, December of 2018. Um, I had been listening, by the way, to Bubble Hour podcast because I, I was just, uh, I think they call it the stages of change, the pre-contemplation, the contemplation. The, you know, I had been listening and it was so very helpful to me because my life is so busy and meetings aren't as realistic as they used to be. Um, I had been listening to those, so I felt that I was getting there. Well, in December of 2018, I went to a holiday work party, and um, my kids usually sleep through the night, but that one night, for some reason, my daughter woke up, and um, I went and laid in her bed with her, and she said, Mama, I smell something, and I thought, oh, well, I ate hibachi, you know, and she, and she, I said, well, what is it? She goes, oh, I know, it's that purple drink, and um, it literally, it literally broke me. I laid in that bed with silent tears streaming down my face thinking, how have I done this? You know, how they've never, they've never asked me what it, what it is, but it's like they innately know, you know, to never ask. And, and for her to think of it as that purple drink and she knows that's what mommy has. I mean, it just broke my heart. And I thought, I can't, this can't be it for my kids and I cannot live this lifestyle anymore. And so, um, it gets me emotional now, but so, um, I finally said, you know, Sarah, you've got to, you've got to figure out a plan for you. I was using the excuses. My life is too busy now. I work full time. I'm a single mom out of twins. I can't go to meetings. I can't, I can't, I can't. And I thought there's a way and it could be listening incessantly to this podcast to and from work. And it could be, hmm, I could take a lunch break and go find a meeting twice a week, um, which is what I did at the beginning of the year. And so, you know, it really was a matter of me saying I have to make this a priority above anything and everything else. Um, and uh, that's where, that's where it landed me. And it was, you know, a reminder, um, the physical relief of not being hungover every morning um, 
is number one. And then me being present. I'm so much more present with my kids, uh, especially at this age. I mean, they're, they're almost four and um, it is such a delight to be in that moment with them. And, you know, as they remind me of all the little beautiful things like ant trails and the moon in the sky during the day, you know, it's like I take all of those moments and go, okay, this is what life is about, you know, not three, three glasses deep, um, you know, thinking that it's going to take the edge off and make me more fun because it's just not true. And so, you know, that's, that, those are the gifts that sobriety brings me. And um, it's, it's funny. I, in one way, parenting has made it harder. Like, it's it's this weird uh, thing for me. Parenting almost feels like that is why I need to drink because it's so hard. But on the same token, parenting is it makes it such a big reason for me to to not drink. So it um, I I'm not putting that into words properly, but. Either way, um, I still have my moments where I'm struggling 100%, but I, I've already gone out and experimented. And like you said, we'll see, we see how it worked out. And um, it, it didn't. So uh, I'm just grateful that I was able to come back. And um, honestly, the women and men that have shared on your show, it just helped me so very much to relate to them. And that's why I wanted to be on here today is, you know, to hopefully help one person and connect. So. Thank you so much for sharing that because I know that there's some hard stuff in there that's hard to revisit. And yeah. um, sometimes we have to hold it at arm's length to be able to say it out loud and and include it in our story. And um, so I, I applaud your your willingness and ability to, to tell your whole story. And I'm wondering, you know, as you um, – as you look back on this now, I mean, perspective is everything, right? And you talked about that, that sort of awakening in the therapist chair and realizing the things that were actually traumatic in your young life. Um, I, I found myself, like, it's one thing to identify the things that hurt you in your life, but then mm-hmm. it's a whole other thing to actually process them and heal from them. And mm-hmm. How does that happen for you? Like what can you take us through what what yeah. occurred for you or how, what your therapist helped you to do besides just acknowledge that things happened? How did you heal from it? Because it sounds like you have a lot more understanding and awareness around it. How did you get there? Yeah. So the first situation with my grandfather, there was kind of two parts. So the one part was she said, I want you to go home and find a, a photo of yourself at that age when this was happening and I want you to to look at yourself and talk to her you know and tell her that you're going to protect her it was a very powerful and emotional exercise um because you know I didn't feel protected back then and so she said just you know imagine that you're giving that little girl a hug and telling her these things and so it was huge for me and I did it a few times you know I kept that in my kitchen drawer and um you know the other part that I had to get past was understanding that my, like not holding on to resentment, right? And understanding that my parents did the very best that they could in that situation. So even though I might have an opinion of how it should have been handled differently, I had to accept that they did what they thought was okay or right or what was best for me, you know? And um, that was just a big thing for me to get through and understand. And, And I did come to peace with that. And the other thing that happened for me was actually, um, and this was a really beautiful moment for me in my recovery um, and kind of an aha moment for me is when I was 20 years old, I knew that um, I knew my grandfather went to AA, but I didn't know anything about it. And so I had gone back up to Michigan to visit them and I was walking by his dock and he pulled me aside and he was kind of stumbling over his words, but he, in a roundabout way, he just said, Hey, there were some things that happened in the past and I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. And that was really it. Um, And I thought, okay, you know, he apologized. But then when I found myself in the program and I started working the steps, I realized that um, that was his, that was him going through his steps and making his amends. And um, it makes me emotional because I feel, uh, I, I was able to reach a point of forgiveness 
because I went through the program myself, you know, and I, I think that I, there's so much irony in that, that I had to end up the same place he did, which nobody wants to, to be there. But, um, you know, to get to a point where I could just accept and, and forgive. And, um, I could also understand the work that he was going through, um, you know, in his own life and program. And he passed away, uh, when I was 24. And so now it's kind of, gosh, I, I so wish I could go back and have a conversation with him now, you know, but that, that was a huge part in me working through that, um, all of that pain, um, and getting through it. And then with the, with the divorce and the guilt, it was really just a matter of me saying out loud in her office, you know, that, that, that would have happened. I had nothing to do with it and it would have happened. I was just a 12 year old girl, you know, trying to please my mom and do what she asked me to do. And, um, and you know, I just didn't play a role in it. And so she just helped me kind of pound that into my head. Like it wasn't you. And so that was the, the main thing on the, on the guilt piece. Do you find now as a mom that you're, protective of your children do you struggle with being overprotective having not had good boundaries modeled for you yes yes absolutely I mean I well I struggle to not be overprotective but I'm a huge uh advocate of, of educating right without without freaking them out and so from a very young age um I've just talked to them um you know they say use the proper body parts, but I also tell them often that this is your, this is your body and kind of what's safe and not. But I, I do say also, even if it's tickling, if you, if you tell somebody to please stop tickling you, they're going to stop tickling you because it's your body. And, you know, but, and then I've had conversations with them about, let's talk about five people, who are five people in your life that you could go talk to um, if something doesn't feel right. Or, so we do talk about it. And, um, I've got a couple of books on my radar, you know, that, that would maybe more age appropriate when they're a couple of years older, but absolutely. I'm terrified. <laughs> and I think um, I'm maybe a little overprotective, but um, I just, I want so badly to keep them from experiencing what I did. As you talk about your family, you know, it strikes me just families are so complex to yeah. begin with. And then when they're dysfunctional in any way, it's just, it's so hard to understand. And it's so hard for the onlooker to understand how it's not black and white. Like just to me listening to your story, you know, the idea of your dad videoing you tipsy, mm-hmm. that like yeah. the, the, the protector in me, it, it feels very angered by that. Or yeah. of like, you know, your mom in your closeness, putting you in an inappropriate level of responsibility and confidence and stuff like that. Like, so I, I feel a little bit, I have, I feel some anger in hearing that because, you know, I feel like that's not right. And, mm-hmm. um, um, but it's, it's more complex when you're the person that's in that role, right? Because it also feels like love or it feels like um, it's confusing, isn't it? I mean, it's not just black and white yeah. and, um, and it's important, I guess, for that reason that we don't just, you know, sometimes the advice that people give us is really black and white. Like that was wrong. You should cut that person out of your life, but it's not that easy. Is it? It's not, you know, and that, that is also something that I had to work through um, that just kind of helped me with, with the therapy because uh, my dad and I have never really had a really close relationship. So it's easier for me to just go, Oh my gosh, what you did. Oh, like that was awful. That was not good dad parenting. You know? <laughs> and, and I do feel angry about it because, um, because I, especially as a mother now, I think about that and think, oh, my gosh, I would never, I would never do that with my child. But there were, you know, it's just um, he's incapable of, you know, I have to think of it that way. He was incapable of parenting in any other way. And, um, you know, and we're not close, so I don't really struggle with negative thoughts. Where I do struggle is is I'm not wanting to have any negative thoughts towards my mother because she and I are so close and we are, you know, the best of friends. And so I, even to this day, and that's been, that was a huge topic on the therapist couch too, was um, I don't want to have any negative feelings because I love her. And, but the reality is we all experience that. And um, I don't ever, you know, cause 
a couple of times my therapist said, hey, do you think she would come sit on the couch and we could talk through these? And I'm like, no, no, no. She would just get so upset and she would be hurt and she would take it personal and I don't want to hurt her. And, you know, and, and that is one thing I still, um, I've never been able to do. And uh, it's just to maybe in some way say, mom, I need to get this out and I need to say this. Um, I just haven't. I, and I don't know that I ever will. And so that is what you're saying. It's just part of the struggle. It's not, it's not black and white, but I also have to be cognizant if it's something really big weighing on me. Um, you know, I, I have to make sure that it doesn't consume me. And so if, if being able to talk through it with my therapist is enough, then, um, you know, I ha I just have to make sure I keep that in check. And, um, you is know, that a gift all... that you give to her in a way? Is like carrying that load yourself. Like it's a, as long as it's a conscious yeah. choice and you're doing it, you know, as a loving gift. I don't yeah, know. I'm sure your therapist ways... will guide you through <laughs> a healthy balance yeah, in there. Some ways, I don't know if it would benefit me in any way, though, to also say it. You know, it's kind of something yeah. that I'm holding on to, and it's like, what good is it going to do if I say, "Mom, you know, that really effed with me when you." when, you know, I carried that guilt around for years, like, I don't know what benefit that would be because she, she can't take it back. And she probably has no idea, honestly. And so um, I don't, um, I guess for me, I kind of feel like, oh, why, why even put her in that situation? Maybe there's another way. And that is how working the, re the recovery program has helped me too. It's not just about the drinking. It's just saying, okay, what can I just accept? What can I let go of? What can I write out on paper? Maybe that's going to be enough, you know? Um, it's really helped me change my perspective on, on the negative things. And, um, I don't know, it's, you know, just being able to let some things go and, uh, yeah. And I, it, that, that part I, has helped me too. Let's talk a little bit more about, about the program and what it means to you. Um, you mentioned that, um, the, the God aspect of it. So for, for listeners that aren't involved in a 12 step program or aren't familiar with it, the, the the first step is admitting powerlessness and mm -hmm. and you the idea then i think it's the second step right where you turn it over to something greater than yourself so it it requires you to sort of say i'm not in charge of the universe and i can let something bigger than me carry this but what you choose to call that is up to you so you might say um you know it's it's um the memory of my grandmother or um, it's just the universe. I'm just going to let the, the fate of the universe hold this for me. Or for a more traditional person, they might say, they might call it God because that's the, you know, the way that they approach it. But there's room, there's a lot of wiggle room to call it what you want. So having not been raised with sort of religious um, background, what did that end up looking like for you? How did you frame it in your mind? Yeah, so I chose, um, in the beginning, I chose the phrase spirit of the universe. Um, and I, I kind of interchange that with higher power. Um, so yeah, I just, I don't, that one took a long time for me. I know I've heard the term fake it till you make it. And, and there were times where I really felt like I was doing that, but I, I just went with it. Um, Spirit of the universe is what I called it. And I did have a moment one night where I just closed my eyes and really, I don't know, I felt this weird moment where I just thought, okay, I feel grounded. I feel connected. And um, I'm just, I don't know if it was me just internally kind of letting go because I am a control freak. And I hear that often um, from people in recovery, you know, you, you are in control of everything. And so I don't know if it was just that moment of me internally kind of saying, okay, I, I relent and I'm going to, you know, take my hands off of this for a little bit. Um, but that's how I tackled it. And uh, to be completely honest, I still struggle with it, even today. I mean, that's, it's, and I think it's a practice thing, you know, if I would follow what they say and, you know, do what they say and pray every day or whatever it is, pray to whoever, you know, you want to call it or whatever you want to call it, um, it would probably benefit me. Um, and I probably wouldn't, you know, struggle with it so much, but it was just a hard concept for me to grasp. However, I am proof that you can make it four years. <laughs> and, you know, if, even if you're having trouble grasping it, there's other parts of the program that you can still get through, you know. Right. Yeah. Because it really does help you to sort of examine the things that are hurting you on the inside and, and work through them. Yes. That's the whole idea, right? Um, yeah. Supports the sobriety piece while it helps you through the recovery piece. And um, talk about the connection of friends. Like I, 
whether whatever program people choose or no program, I feel like it's so important to connect with someone who understands. What did that mean to you in making those friendships? Oh gosh, yeah. It was um I think it was you know, not having to feel self-conscious, right? Because you're changing your lifestyle up completely and not having to explain yourself. Um, there was just so much comfort in knowing that uh, these people understand no matter what level you've gotten to, you know, they understand what it means to have no off switch and to chase the buzz and all of those things. And so um, they get you. And so that part was, um, most comforting to me. And it was important because it's not that you have to abandon your, you know, friends, obviously that you've had for years, but those first few months were so vulnerable for me and, um, and hard. And so to be able to go to a regular place where I was seeing the same faces and then we would go grab a bite to eat after, you know, and it was, it was kind of a safe zone for me, you know, and, um, out of it became friendships and, um, and it was really, it was really integral for me. And, you know, that's the thing is I made the conscious choice to not stay connected because people can only call and text you so much. Right. And so, um, you know, I made the decision as things got busier in my life and I was, Oh, I'm going to be a mom now. And I kind of left all of that in the dust when I moved. And, um, it, it goes to show when you lose those connections and those people that get you and can kind of help keep you safe, you know, then, then you're left back where you started. So. Right. And it's funny, you know, there's there's um, an understanding. We've talked about it on some old episodes of the Bubble Hour that there's 11 stages to relapse and that they start way before the relapse happens. It's like your addiction mm-hmm. just quietly puts all the pieces in place to just yeah. and it just waits patiently for its moment. Right. And um, and so there I'm just looking at the 11 steps of relapse. Uh, emotions, denial, compulsive behaviors, triggers, inner chaos, external turmoil, loss of control, addictive thinking, um, high-risk situations, relapse, and aftermath. Those things sound pretty extreme, but they they can be small, like addictive thinking, internal chaos, um, uh, high-risk situations. Isolation is a high-risk situation. (laughs) Isolation as a single mom with Twin babies. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's, yes, it's like you know, there's a lot of beauty in that life, but as being isolated, which, as mm-hmm. you say, kind of happened slowly over time. It wasn't like you're like, bam, that's it. I'm done with these people. Um, you just, you know, yeah. you get busy, and and that's yeah. where kind of continuing to work a program, even when you feel like you don't need it, can kind of help yes. prevent that. But I'm curious yes. your take on on something. What was harder, would you say, walking into your first meeting, getting sober the first time, or going back to a meeting after relapse? Oh gosh, uh, the very first one was way harder for me. Um, this going back. You know, it wasn't hard, and the reason is because I knew how I know how forgiving everyone is in those rooms, and it's not even about forgiving; it's that they they're just there with open arms always, you know. And um, so, there is that perfectionist person in me, of course, that feels shameful, right? And you just want to, you just don't. There's a part of it that I just don't want to go do this and face up to this. But I also know it's that you're going to receive nothing but love and support and words of encouragement. And um, it was actually a relief to me to go back into that first meeting and go, okay, I know how this works. I know how great these ladies are going to be. And um, it just felt good. And I spoke up right away. I just said, hey, I'm here, and it's been this many years, and I need to just get it out, you know. So I just kind of told them what had happened and why I was there, and it was amazing. I got so many hugs and, you know, made it easy. You know, I think that's probably the biggest surprise for people that have never been to a meeting or in a sharing circle or anything like that. Like there's mm-hmm. so much shame and fear that our addiction leverages in those yeah. moments where we're like contemplating reaching out for help because, you know, our addiction like plays on our fears and tells us like you're going to be judged, you're not going to fit in. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the complete opposite of that. None of that is true. And um 
I, you know, I just, I feel like it's just so good to hear you say that, that it's, it's just like slipping into a warm bath to go back again, isn't it? Like to just, yeah, to just, you know, that, that there's going to be acceptance and support and not like, oh no, you failed. You can't come back in. <laughs> like it's not, right. It's not at all what it's right. about. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. as you you know you said that the people were reaching out to you and we're trying to stay connected as you grew more and more isolated and as you said that I remembered this this meme that was going around Instagram a while ago that said call your strong friends you know remember to call oh. your strong friends and not just the people that are struggling um, do yeah. you make an effort to do that now knowing what you know about your own life you know, I'm still really admittedly bad about, about staying in touch. Um, and I have kind of been that way all my life. I'm, I'm like an introvert to the core. And um, so I do have good friends, but I usually have like this handful core group that, you know, it's kind of like we can pick up wherever we left off. And I'm really bad. I am really bad about staying in touch. And so that plays into, you know, my recovery. It's like a lot of work for me to to stay connected. Um, mm-hmm. And even though I know these things, I still don't do it because I still fall back on that. I'm so busy, but I do know that it's, it is important. And I, I admittedly bad at it though. <laughs> um, I am. What, one of the um, phrases that I, I learned early in recovery and I was skeptical about it, but I've since, since listening to hundreds of stories on the bubble hour, I now have a different take on it. The expression I'm thinking of is that the disease does push-ups. Um, tell us what that means and what your experience <laughs> is with it. Oh my gosh, I've hardly heard this one. Um, okay, do you know what I'm talking about? Those? I do, but I've heard it, but I don't know. I don't know. You could probably describe it way better than I could. <laughs> okay, I'll say what, I'll say what I think it means, and then tell me what it means to you. So, as I understand it, the idea is that even while we're not drinking, our addiction is still, um, you know, our brains are still addicted. There's there's a, a there's a change that happens in our brains that is addiction. The switch is flipped. The the, the pleasure reward circuitry is hijacked, and that doesn't tend to repair itself. Um, there's some studies that show it can in really young people while their brains are still pretty plastic, but for adults, it tends not to repair itself. And that's why once you've had that change, um, staying abstinent for life is really the best course of action. It's the simplest course of action, but it's also um, the best because your brain is, is, has adapted permanently to the flood of alcohol that Mm-hmm. It was given for years. And so the idea is that even though, like, we sort of think of, like, maybe I'm on a cleanse, <laughs> things have reset, yes. maybe I can drink again. And the idea is that, no, the idea that disease stays strong. And when you do, if you do re- try to drink again um, yeah. moderately or just a little, um, you can really quickly return to the very same level of drinking where you left off. and go forward quickly from there. Was that yeah. your experience? Yeah, th- that that was absolutely, yes. I get what you're saying now. Yes, that uh, that was my disease 100% doing push-ups. Yeah, because <laughs> it, came, it came back and, uh, yeah, and I felt, you know, I always heard it was progressive and that it will actually get worse. Even if you take years off, it could be worse. And, um, and it was. It progressed quickly. Um, I felt that I was drinking more than I had been the first time I quit. And, um, yeah, everything you hear is true. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, why did I have to go and try and prove that? You know, just believe what they tell you. There's enough people out there that have done it already, you know. Um, (laughs) Don't have to go try it for yourself. So, um, no, that was absolutely an accurate description of, of what happened. Yes. Are there any other um, sayings that you've heard in your program or in recovery in general that really stay with you and mean a lot to you? Yeah. So the, the first one is um, that really resonated with me was when I, well, am, or so when I am controlling it, I am not enjoying it. And when I am enjoying it, I am not controlling it. And so 
that really resonated with me because that was my my drinking in a nutshell. Hmm. And the other one I, I haven't heard, heard that recently. one before. Ah, that's yeah, a, that one. That one. one really is is like my number one. Um, because I just felt like, oh, I connect with that, and I have to remember that. You know. Can you say it again um, for me? I'm going to write it down. When? Yeah, when I, or I should say, was when I was controlling it, I wasn't enjoying it, and when I was enjoying it. I wasn't controlling it. Yeah, that is that is so true. Yeah, and that one really stuck with me. And I just heard, um, oh, my gosh, I'm totally blanking out on it. Apparently, it's a popular one, but I just heard it recently. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that was so fantastic. And I'm blanking out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I kind of sprung that was, question on you. Um, I'll tell you too. one of my favorites. And I heard it yeah. for the first time on the Bubble Hour um, from Ellie when she was hosting and um, and she had heard it in the rooms, I'm sure. But the idea that um, addiction is not your fault, but recovery is your responsibility. And that mm. one just stayed with me as being just so true and so helpful. Yes, yes. I haven't heard that one. I love that. Um, yeah. So we're we're winding down our hour here. And just in the few moments that we have left, I wonder if you just sort of have any final thoughts that you want to share with listeners of this show, maybe words of encouragement or reflections or something that you want to leave people with as we wrap up today? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, gosh, I don't know. I, I guess mm, <laughs> there's so many uh a couple of things that I've just really struggled with that maybe would speak to others is just that idea of, um, you know, keeping up the appearances and just that struggle to like relent and say, I am not perfect or, you know, this is not okay. It's, you know, if there is something deep down inside of you saying, I know that this isn't right. Um, but I'm, there's no way I can, you know, say it out loud. I mean, there's actually so much beauty and clarity in doing that, you know, and um, it doesn't mean that it has to change overnight, but you can take one step at a time, you know, and just put one step forward. And, um, you know, I think that would have been helpful for me to hear back at the time because I was just so concerned with appearances and making sure that everything in my life was perfect, even though I was crumbling inside, you know, and um, just saying it out loud is okay to someone that you trust and, uh, you know, you can take it one, one day and one step at a time. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Sarah, thank you for being here and sharing your story. Thanks for taking time out of your vacation. And yeah. um, I just am picturing that your kids must be the cutest little <laughs> beans. So please give each of them a big kiss on the forehead and tell them thank you for sharing their mommy with us today. Yeah, and listeners, if you would like to send a message to share, to Sarah to let her know that her story touched you or um, if you had any light bulb moment from this episode that you'd like to share, um, you can reach Sarah by emailing me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will forward it on to her. And just so you know, uh, I am on vacation next week. I have the wonderful privilege of going uh, to Europe with my 80-year-old mother and my two sisters. We are repeating the girls' trip we did two years ago. My mom wants to see what she can of the world while she still has two good legs and uh, a tiny bit of her vision. So we're going off to do that. So I won't have a show for next week, uh, but then I'll be back later in the month with more episodes. So that's everything from us for this week. Until next time, everyone, please take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We oh, you think you're strong it just stays and waits there 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.